Welcome to the ACC Podcast. My name's Tyler Birch. I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and His Son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Last week, Mike talked about God's rest, and we even released a short video summarizing the message and giving us something to chew on during the week. You can easily view that on our website or on Facebook. But it begs the question, how can we rest knowing that we are sinful and completely bare before God? He sees all and knows all about us. But we've got nothing to cover up because Christ is our cover. And Mike dives deeper into that this week as we go through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. This message answers those questions we had from last week. How do we get there? How do we get to be okay with this? It's the good news of his finished work that allows us to have rest. Let's read 4.14 through 5.10 together. I'm going to read from the ESV version. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, this is a a, a big wordy passage, and I just pray, God, boy, um, it's been a real struggle this week, even just trying to piece together how to say effectively what's being said. And so I pray that what we hear this morning are your words. I pray you'd make us attentive, help us to zone in, to take notes, to do whatever it takes to hear what you have for us, because I believe you have something for us today. So God... Work with us now. Speak to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. 
as I kind of mentioned in that prayer, this is like a, there's a lot of big biblical religious sounding words in this passage. High priests and the order of Melchizedek and stuff. These aren't things we talk about normally. And so if you're, if you're like a newer Christian or you're not a Christian, you're just checking things out and you're kind of like, whoa, you know, no idea what that was about. That's okay. You know, we're going to try to clarify some things. We won't be able to clarify all of it, but we're going to do some of that. But even if you're not new, this is one of those passages that brings up, you know, these Old Testament Levitical things. And sometimes the temptation is to just let that sort of wash over us and to to sort of check out. But I want to, to grab you right here because this topic of Jesus's high priesthood makes up the content of the next five chapters in this letter. Okay, so the author thinks this is a big deal, and it's important. The challenge here is that we have this big topic that the author thought was important and relevant, but we don't typically use this kind of lingo today. So does that make it irrelevant for us? What is the significance of Jesus's role as a high priest, and why should we care? Well, let's get into that. If you recall... Our previous passage ended with a picture of standing in a terrifying place before the throne of God who sees everything. We stand naked and exposed inside and out before him to whom we must give an account. And now in verse 16, we just read, let us with confidence draw near to that throne. Okay, so on the one hand, you're standing naked and exposed before a holy God. And on the other hand, Draw close to him with confidence, with boldness. So how do you get there? How is that possible? The answer, our great high priest. Okay, now some might ask, why would I actually care to approach the throne of God in the first place? And that's kind of maybe where our culture is at. That may be something that was more of a concern for people in history, but now we're pretty content with where we're at maybe. And the answer he gives is to receive mercy, to find grace, to help in times of need, to be able to appeal to our Father in heaven, to get help. Well, help with what? If you look back at verse 14, he says, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This passage has two imperatives, two warnings, two commands, if you will. Hold fast and draw near. Hold fast. In fact, this is probably about the third or fourth time he's given that warning. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't abandon your faith. Hold fast to what you've learned. As a matter of fact, that's actually like the whole point of this entire letter to the Hebrews is that in times of testing, that they would hold fast to what they had professed to believe in Christ. And he's kind of making a case for that. So what's the solution? The context is this church is facing persecution. They're under pressure. It's unpopular to be associated with Christians or to follow Jesus. You can get, you know, you can get harassed for that. You can go to jail for that. You could be persecuted for that. And so in times like that, sometimes we run closer to God, and sometimes we turn our backs on him. And that was happening. Believers were turning their backs on him. 
And so the author is encouraging us, run to God. Don't run away from him for help. Run to him for help in our times of need. And when it says that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that word for weakness covers the whole gamut. It's sickness, physical weakness, general weakness associated with just being flesh and blood, being human, or even moral weakness. And the author makes it clear that Jesus never shared in our experience of sin, but he did share in every experience of human weakness that could lead one to sin. We all experience weakness from time to time. We're all beset with weakness, you could say, in our humanity. I experience weakness as a parent. I don't have the fortitude or the wisdom to respond to every challenge perfectly, let alone to respond to every challenge at all. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, guys, just figure it out, okay, you know? In fact, I think God gave us family. I think he gave us marriage. I think he gave us our children, oftentimes, so that in times of testing, we would become aware of our weaknesses. You know, I was a way better parent when I wasn't a parent. I didn't realize what it would expose in me. And that's the same for everything. With every relationship comes an awareness of our weaknesses, right? I experience weakness when I'm sick. I experience weakness when I'm tired or when I get depressed. I experience weakness when I'm tempted to covet things because I'm not satisfied or grateful for what God has given me and what he's blessed me with. I experience weakness when I look to other sources of stability in my life instead of God. And that's what's at the heart of this passage. That's why this is relevant to us. We all have this felt need for stability in our world, just as these Hebrews did. The author is saying that you can come to the throne of grace and access resources that are beyond this world in order to find true stability. But when things get tumultuous, when there's instability, where do you turn? Do you go towards God or away from him? Do you try to seize control of the situation and try to fix everything? Do you try to control the people in your life, the people around you to to make things right? Do you point fingers? Do you blame others? Do you check out from the situation and just go absorb entertainment or substances or something like that? Get online and just, you know, browse Facebook for hours or YouTube or something like that. Where do you go when things get tough, when there's tumultuousness? big word, in our, in our lives. In whom or what do we place our confidence? Who is your high priest? And that's really what this role accommodates, is that source of stability in our lives. And so, what is that for you? What is a high priest? Why do we care? Chapter 5 began with, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A high priest basically is the main representative between the people and God. He alone was allowed to approach the throne 
which was connected with the most holy place and the tabernacle or the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. And he could do that one time every year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of all the people. So first of all, that's significant. Okay, if the author says, let us all approach the throne with confidence, that would have been scandalous to those hearers in that day. The idea that we can now approach God without a human intermediary, we're kind of used to that idea. In fact, we kind of have a role reversal going on. We kind of think, well, yeah, well, I mean, God's supposed to approach me. You know, I'm, you know, we tend to think of ourselves on our own little thrones half the time. The role of the high priest was hereditary, probably for a lifetime. A high priest was assumed to be chosen by God through the casting of some special lots or dice, you know, that kind of thing. And he had to come from the family line of Aaron or the Levites. Now, this may all sound foreign to us today, but basically, this is a system that was designed to remove human sin and remove a right and restore a right relationship between people and God. The priest would sacrifice an animal that was meant to represent you and I and the debt that we owed because of our evil. And the priest would take some of that blood, which represented its life, and it would, would sprinkle it on the furniture, the tabernacle, the curtains, as a way of the life purifying the impurity of the community and so on. And so it was important. There were benefits and drawbacks to the system. But basically, our relationship with God would have been somewhat dependent upon our relationship with a high priest. Okay, so our author is making this plea. Hold on firmly to the faith that we profess. Why? Because we have a much greater high priest. We have one who isn't going to reject you or abandon you because of your weakness or his weakness. He's able to empathize with us as one who experienced all the same, same temptations that we experience. And now he has made a way for us to be able to come boldly before the throne of God. He himself fulfilled God's will on our behalf, giving himself as an offering, obedient to God unto death itself, cleansing us by his own blood, and being resurrected, we now have a high priest that won't die and need to be replaced. He stands there forever for you. He stands there holding the doorway open to the throne for you. We have a high priest that isn't prone to sin, thus the required need for sacrifices. No, he's a, a once-for-all sacrifice who now is your forever access to God. As I said earlier, when things get hard, when there is instability, we all tend to place our confidence in something in order to gain the stability that we want in our lives. Okay? The author is pleading with us because every other source will let you down. Every other source passes away. And every other source will demand something of you. The plea is, in the end, Jesus is all you have 
He's all you actually have. And he's everything you need. He's all you have, and he's everything you need. Because in the end, we stand before the throne to give an account. And he is the best gift that could be given and the only thing that can allow us to stand in that place. Every other source will abandon you or melt away, will be taken from you in death. He is all you have, but he's everything you need. We live in a culture that prizes self-actualization and self-preservation. We look out for number one. My confidence is dependent upon whether or not it works out for me. I'll go to church as long as I can get something out of it. We're very consumer-driven. We seem to adopt this contractile agreement with God. I'll follow you. I'll believe in you as long as you keep giving me fill in the blank, you know, um, whether it's financial stability or some other stability in my life or, um, you know, resources for, for parenting or whatever it is. It's not thy will be done. It's my will be done. And God is my personal assistant who's there to help me accomplish my will. And so when things get rocky and it doesn't look like he's helping me accomplish my will, how do I interpret that? Usually I blame God. God is either angry with me or, I'm in, or he's indifferent. He doesn't care about my situation. Or perhaps it's evidence that he just doesn't exist at all. C.S. Lewis wrote in a little essay called God on the Dock. He said, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, man, is the judge, and God is in the dock or on trial. He's quite a kindly judge, man is. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. So this idea of good news that we can come before the throne of God with confidence maybe doesn't even resonate with us in our culture because we're just kind of like, well, duh, you know, isn't it God who's supposed to come before my throne? You know, we wouldn't say that, but, but that's kind of the, the, what we get because when God doesn't pass our test, where do we put our confidence? Where do we put our trust? We can put it in ourselves. Okay, that's one option. In my commentary by uh, George Guthrie, he quoted um, the actress Shirley MacLaine, and one thing that she said was, the only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. I had a friend, uh, my brother and I did, and back when we were like kids, we'd take him to youth group, and he was kind of processing it for a while, and then a, a couple of years later, he approached me and said like, hey Mike, I decided I don't need to believe in God, I believe in myself. <laughs> it's just kind of obnoxious, but uh, so I was just like, all right, you have, you know, 
You have fun with that, but uh, caught me off guard. So culturally, we may not look to a high priest today, but there is a strong message today to place all of our confidence in ourselves. You'll find what you need in here. Or maybe our leaders. Like Mark pointed this out this week as we were talking. You think about our politicians and the promises that are made and the expectations that are placed upon these human beings, right? We claim to be independent of God or of some human high priest, but think with me for a second. Why do people get so amped up and polarized and angry over our American president? Think about the things people say and the promises that are made. You talk to people, and, and on the one hand, it's like, man, you know, this next guy who's going to get in, he's going to fix everything. Like, my life is going to be perfect because somebody over in Washington, D.C. And these are like the promises that are being made, you know. And so there's just like all this emphasis on a human being. We still do this. We're not graduated from putting our confidence in a human institution. We just transfer it from person to person. And when they don't meet our standards, oh man, we in our infinite wisdom know exactly how to be president of the United States, which is very clear by the vitriol and ridicule we throw at them when they get it wrong, don't we? You know, you know? like it's true. So we put confidence in our leaders. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it is God, it is not God, who must stand before your throne to give an account. It's the other way around. And in that scenario, all you have is Jesus. And he is all you will ever need. I had a a friend tell me once that he had had a conversation with someone who visited our church, uh, uh, very reluctantly visited. We'll call my friend uh, Jim. We'll call the other guy Bill. I won't use names. Now, Bill is, you know, he's not a Christian. He came because, you know, he felt like someone was dragging him in to church and so on. And so he kind of sat in the back and he kind of cornered my friend Jim and they started having a conversation he said something to the effect of, you know, I don't know about all this stuff. That preacher's kind of long-winded, you know. And he said what we've all heard many people say. He's like, you know what? I don't need to believe in God because I have everything I need right here. All I need to believe in is right here. I can believe in myself, the confidence in myself. And Jim, I think, was getting a little fed up because he was trying to listen and listen to this guy at the same time and be nice. And finally, he just says, like, Bill, that's great. Go ahead and put all your confidence in yourself because that is all you're ever going to get. Everything for eternity that you will ever need is right here, and this is all you're ever going to have. And he said, As for me, this is not enough. This weak body prone to decay this weak person who gets it wrong from time and time. I need, I need something more than this. I need what we're talking about here today. This is not enough. And the guy was totally caught off guard and kind of didn't know what to, to do with that. But no other priest is adequate. Why? Because at the end of the day, every 
priest is weak and every priest is given over to temptation and sin. And so at the end of the day, you are alone because there's no one else who will go with you all the way through the end. Nothing you can put your confidence in. But Jesus will not abandon you. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 said, For this reason he he had to be made like them, like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted As Michael Heiser put it, the reason Christ became human was to serve in this role, to run interference between us and God. Hebrews 10, we'll get there later, but I'll read part of it now. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus became human so that we could have confidence in him to make us a part of God's family. Jesus is the one who faced every weakness and temptation and was crying out and weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing down the cross, saying, God, if it's at all possible... Remove this cup, the cup representing suffering, from me, but only if it's your will. Jesus is the one who at the end of the day surrendered his will completely over to God all the way through death, and he made it through without sin. He made it through uncorrupted so that he could ascend and take a throne and invite you and I in, and he did that knowing your weaknesses already. Romans 5, 3 through 6 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus won't abandon you because of your weakness. Why? Because you were already in your weakness when he chose to come and endure weakness and suffering and death to make a way for you to come before the throne of God. Okay, he's not going to abandon you now if we were still in our weakness when he died for us. If that's true... He won't condemn us, and we can have confidence. He understands our problems, and he's become our solution. Because he is enthroned as Lord, and he got himself there on our behalf, we don't have to doubt. The human response to weakness is to look out for number one. He always responded to weakness according to God's will. That's why it says in verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's kind of a weird thought for us. How can the Son of God learn something? How can he learn obedience? 
He knew he was going to have to experience and learn what it is to know pain and instability and weakness and temptation and learn what it means to obey God in those times. And verse 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, it's not that Jesus was ever imperfect, like morally or anything like that, but being brought to completion, having gone through the school of suffering and accomplished God's will all the way through, he's able to stand in a position that was previously not able to be attained, able to be the ultimate high priest when all other high priests failed, able to stand in the gap for you and I. We can be confident that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that we have gained full access to God based on the fact that Jesus knows what it's like to be us. Despite knowing ahead of time, he still said yes. So he's not going to say no now. So again, the author is urging us, hold fast to your convictions, to your belief in Christ, because all of this, this gift of having a standing before God, depends not on yourselves. It doesn't depend on your performance, or an imperfect priest, or a president, whose ticket will never be. You can vote for me, Because I can identify with your weakness, right? That's just never going to happen. When a perfect person did everything perfectly for you, why lose heart? There's nothing else that's going to beat that. He is all you have, and he is all you will ever need. The only reason we would lose faith and reject the gospel is when we turn our eyes inwardly and fix our eyes upon ourselves and our merits and our goodness and our performance. But the question of our salvation, that rests on Jesus' performance, not yours. And so we have simply to cast ourselves upon him and rest in that. My commentary cited... Martin Luther and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I just want to share those things with you because he used them as examples of people in times of testing who did not turn away. Luther, of course, had challenged the teaching of the Catholic Church at the time and their selling of indulgences. You pay money for your sins to be forgiven and so on. And he you know, nailed his 95 theses to the door and all those things. And, and he went to, they called him to this meeting. They gave him this opportunity. They said, um, if you recant of your teachings, we'll restore you to your position and to the church. And that was a big deal. Because if Luther was going to look out for number one, there's a lot of comfort in that. You, know, so you get your old job back. You get your community back. You're not going to be ostracized or kicked out. What he said was, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. He was able to lay self aside 
because of the deep conviction about the lordship of his high priest, Jesus, who alone paid for all his sins, removing the need for an earthly priest or a go-between. He could have done the comfortable thing, but to simply serve yourself, if Shirley MacLaine is right, hey, at the end of the day, you're the only one you go to bed with, well, this would make no sense to him. Because at the end of the day, to not recant would mean I have to put my confidence in human beings who are weak and fallible and want my money, claiming that that will get God to forgive my sins. I have a much better high priest. I don't need this go-between. I don't need their system. And if I were to do the easy thing and recant, as difficult as it is not to, I would have to put my confidence in something much less. Similarly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a minister who was imprisoned because he didn't go along with the culture when the government mandated the churches to only say certain things and to not oppose certain ideas and so on, to keep silent. He couldn't do it. He couldn't watch the Holocaust. He couldn't watch what was happening with their nation. So he he joined a resistance movement and was arrested for that. Bonhoeffer was in prison right up to the very end of the war. In fact, he and his inmates, they could hear the Allied guns approaching. Freedom was near. But the Germans, they kept moving, the Nazis, they kept moving their camp back further and further to avoid getting captured. And our text, the text I read by George Guthrie says, Time finally ran out for Bonhoeffer. An interrogator from Berlin named Hupengothen arrived with orders for Bonhoeffer's immediate trial and execution. On Sunday, the theologian was entreated by his fellow prisoners, among them Roman Catholics and even a communist from Russia, to hold a worship service. He gave an exposition on, by his wounds we are healed, from Isaiah 53, and praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's 1 Peter 1.3. The sermon touched the others deeply. Following this message, Bonhoeffer was called out of his cell and transported to Flossenburg, where he was interrogated, tried, and condemned. The next morning, between 5 and 6 o'clock, Bonhoeffer, stripped naked beneath the scaffold, knelt to pray one last time in a woodland spring. In his final morning meditation to reach the outside world, the professor wrote, the key to everything is the in him. All that we might rightly expect from God and ask him for is to be found in Jesus Christ. The God of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what God as we imagine him could and ought to do. In other words, we might say, God ought to free me. He ought to rescue me right now. I don't know why he's not doing that. But the the key is to be found in him. If we are to learn what God promises and what he fulfills, we must persevere in quiet meditation on the life, sayings, deeds, sufferings, and death of Jesus. It is certain that we may always live close to God and in light of his presence, And that such living is an entirely new life for us. That nothing is then impossible for us 
because all things are possible with God, that no earthly power can touch us without his will, and that danger and distress can only drive us closer to him. So this week, I wrestled with this whole passage and how I was going to preach on it big time. I actually set up, we set up as a team, um, landmarks, if you will, like things in place to make it so that Saturday night wouldn't be this big burden of having to get everything together last minute. Um, you know, I was wrestling with this. I sat down with Mark and Tyler and um, to, to deliver all the bullet points so that I'd have like a good head start and, and really get it all nailed down. And uh, this is one that like despite all the efforts, it was just so hard to pull it together. And I think the reason is, is because what I was trying to do is figure out how do you actually convey what's being spoken of here? Something you can only really know by experiencing it. Because I'm reading about Bonhoeffer, and I'm going, God, honestly, I don't know if I would do that. Like, it'd be so easy to say, I'm going to look out for number one. Maybe God will forgive me. I mean, if, if, if everyone in the world lived according to the wisdom of Shirley MacLaine, there would be no Bonhoeffers, because this is ludicrous. And I remember that video from when ISIS was executing all kinds of Christians and you know, other Muslims and different religious people and whatnot. And I remember that video of, of all the, the men in their orange jumpsuits kneeling there, being given the opportunity to recant, and all but, I think, one or two of them refused to recant, and so they were all executed, shot. And I'm just thinking, if I were in that position... What would I do? What is this passage giving us that would so move a person to remain faithful even unto death as Christ did? You'd have to have really strong faith, you know, and all that. And, and at that time, I was really wrestling with those things. How do you convey that? How do you, you know, wrestling with it internally, all of it. And um, uh, Stacy O'Hagan, at that moment, like sent out a link to a song to a bunch of us who are involved with the worship team. And I listened to that song, and it was like um, exactly what was being conveyed. And um, it kind of nailed me. I was like in tears, and I had to listen to it about four times in a row. And So I want to share with you just the words. It's a long song, so I'm only going to share with you the words of the chorus, the choruses. Um, three choruses, and I'll put one, one of the verses in between the second and the last chorus. There was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There is another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding what power set me free? There is a grave that holds no body, and now that power lives in me. What power? 
the resurrection, Holy Spirit power to accomplish God's will in the face of testing. The third verse says, There is no other name but the name that is Jesus, he who was and still is and will be through it all. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning, and I know I will never be alone. There will be another in the fire standing next to me. There will be another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding how good you've been to me, I'll count the joy come every battle because I know that's where you'll be. Why would we draw near? Because he's all you have and he's all you will ever need. Let's pray. Father, in times of trouble, help us to draw near to you. To not simply check out, to not try to seize control when our weaknesses flare up or the weaknesses of others. Help us to draw on you. Because you've been through it all. You stand there in the fire with us. And that's been you from the very beginning. You've made a way for us to enter into paradise and we've rejected you over and over again and we've faced the consequences of our horrible mistakes and decisions and yet for some reason you keep standing there as a shield that's there ready to guard us, ready to receive us back. And so Father, I just pray right now, if there's anyone here who's struggling is on the brink of turning away because things are hard. There's pressure. There's social pressure. It's unpopular to be called a Christian today. Lord, you face the same things and I'll count the joy come every battle because that is where you are. That's where you'll be. And that's where we find you. So we trust you today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC. We are now back on our standard fall schedule with two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.